everybody, and welcome to another exciting edition of the Midnight Mass Podcast. My name is Peaches Christ. I'm your old ghoul friend, in case you forgot. Uh, I'm here with my very special co-host, who's come all the way from Vulcanvania to be here today. That's right. It's the one, the only, Michael Verratti. Well, thank you for that lovely introduction, Peaches. And as we do in Vulcanvania, I've brought all this delicious-looking sausage for us to enjoy. <laughs> Lord knows I love to chow down on your big sausage. <laughs> That's something we've never admitted on the podcast because it's not true. No. Uh, but what a great segue into this week's movie, which, of course, if you haven't guessed already, is 1991's Nothing But Trouble, directed by Dan Aykroyd, written by Dan and Peter Aykroyd, and starring Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, John Candy, and Demi Moore, as well as an appearance, first film appearance, no less, from one of the world's most famous rap stars. It is a conundrum of a film. You know, this podcast has been such a great experience for me because we get to revisit many of my old favorites, but also I have been introduced to a number of new favorites. And this is certainly one of those episodes where Michael and I, basically we had to invite a guest back on because they were unfairly, <laughs> you know, uh, a cut from the podcast uh, through no, um, you know, fault of their own. It was it was right, a completely yeah. unrelated issue, right? So Rory Davis, who is a guest on this podcast, he came back on after recording uh, Howard the Duck with us and us removing our Howard the Duck episode. Uh, he came back on to discuss any cult movie. We just knew that we wanted Rory back on, which often isn't really how we do the podcast. We know we start with sure. the film and then we look for the guests. So Rory sent us a list. Do you even remember the list of movies that he suggested? I don't remember it that well. I know that it was this because obviously we're talking about it. Yeah. And I, re I remember that Mannequin was also on the oh, list. Oh, that's right. Because it became very close to Mannequin at one point. And I do think that we will do Mannequin at some point. So we, Michael and I keep a very long list of, of episodes in progress episodes we hope to do in the future. I think every title that Rory sent us was on our list, except for this one. And now it's Mannequin and I Know Wild Things was another one, because right. that's another one we've discussed. And maybe a couple others that we also... But this was the one where I had to call you and be like, Michael, what the hell is Nothing But Trouble? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know! And it's funny because Nothing But Trouble was certainly one of those movies during the video store rental era that I remember very prominently hitting the shelves. I don't necessarily recall it being in theaters, but I do remember seeing the VHS tape with that strange cover with the sort of gnarly looking Dan Aykroyd, as well as the rest of the cast hovering over the weird mansion and garbage with the title Nothing But Trouble. And it had that sort of 90s, late 80s, ensemble comedy look to it that I was like, oh, this has to be another one of these kind of planes, trains, and automobiles or once right. upon a crime kind of group comedy movies. And boy, was it not that when I rented it when I was younger, but it's fucking weird enough that it stuck with me. And although I didn't have the trajectory with it that Rory and our other guests did, when Peaches called, I was like, oh, yeah, of course, this is a cult film. And in fact, I know people who love this movie. And so it was a really great, as Peaches said, uh, way for both of us to look at a movie that maybe we hadn't considered, but also realize why 
there were passionate followers of it because of just how truly, uniquely bizarre it is. What ended up happening was that uh, we actually took the list of movies that Rory sent to us and we put it to our Patreon subscribers to vote. And um, that was really fun to watch. So the Patreon subscribers, you know, if you subscribe to our Patreon, you often inform what episodes get made next. You know, um, we we are actually paying attention to what you're saying. We follow all your conversations. Sometimes we're very upfront about it. We'll put out a midnight mini mass and throw out a bunch of ideas. And the Patreon listeners get to basically chime in And they really help us navigate the direction of this podcast, you know. So if you want a say in what we do, join our Patreon because we really do. Every vote matters. And this movie was like really moving ahead of the rest. And I'm like, what the fuck? It's the (laughs) one movie I haven't seen on this list. So I watched it. And then, of course, I call Michael and I'm like, oh, my God, how did I miss this? This movie is so bizarre and wild and outrageous. I can't stop thinking about it. How did it get made? I want to know everything. And then Nothing But Trouble ended up winning the the poll. And, uh, And here we are today discussing it. And I'm really glad we are, because I think that in many ways, this podcast is built for anomalous movies. You know, the movie that feels like the underdog that becomes beloved for being an underdog. And when you think of the era when this movie was made, I mean, I referenced already Planes, Trains and Automobiles and uh, Once Upon a Crime, which was an ensemble comedy that was made around this time. And the idea that all of these people working were big stars. They were big stars who were making kind of the box office driving movies. You've got Dan Aykroyd, known for Ghostbusters and Blues Brothers and Chevy Chase, who was America's dad and the Lampoon vacation movies. And Demi Moore is like hot off of uh, Ghost, I think, yeah. at this point. These are really, really big stars. So for all of them to jump into this bizarre vision of Dan Aykroyd's that is, by and large, what we describe with some of our guests as a Texas chainsaw kind of comedy is a really interesting choice for all parties involved. And I think that that's what makes this movie so special. I also think that's why it made the movie kind of a conundrum for audiences and critics alike when it came out, because it was so, I don't want to say disparate, but different from what people knew these actors and creators for. And certainly even me watching it all these years later, maybe I was even more baffled by it, you know, because it is such an individual experience. Like, I I don't know that you can, can compare it to very many things. It's so bizarre. It's so different. The tone is wild. The production design is unbridled and over the top and expensive for a vision that usually struggles to get made. If you look at the script, if you look at what it's about, it's often this kind of movie that that has a very low budget. So to see a gross out film with absurd, morbid themes, you don't usually get the kind of money that they got to make this movie. But you also don't get the uh, A-list cast. And one thing we have to mention before diving in further is you don't usually get John Candy in drag. And John Candy is so good in this film. You know, another superstar in his own right who shows up and appears both in and out of drag. It's just one of those wonderful movies that just keeps on giving. And like Michael mentioned at the beginning... Digital underground, including Tupac Shakur, show up in the middle of the movie. It's got everything. 
It's wild. <laughs> and you know what? I have to say, credit where credit's due, Dan Aykroyd, being someone who was so known for his work in Second City and Saturday Night Live, and this is something that we discuss all throughout this episode, but really, really, it's important to emphasize. This is a singular vision from a director who certainly is trying something beyond what he's known for, but also in a lot of ways is exactly what he's known for. He is a comedian who also happens to really like the bizarre and the weird. That's where Ghostbusters comes from. We get coneheads. This is someone who I think understands the delicate balance between horror and comedy. And I really hope that as people continue to discover this movie, they get a new appreciation for Dan Aykroyd, the creator, and Dan Aykroyd, the writer and director, because he's us. He's a midnight mass kind of guy. He's a weirdo. Yeah. And boy, would I love to have him on the show to let him know that we're celebrating him because he deserves celebrating. That's right. So if you are a listener who has and in with Dan Aykroyd. Would you please direct him towards this podcast and let him know how much we love Nothing But Trouble and that we want to see justice for Nothing But Trouble? It would be easy because of the A-list, I mean, the incredible star power that this film has um, that Michael's mentioned, and in, in, including Digital Underground and Tupac Shakur. <laughs> yeah. But there are a couple of brother and sisters, the Brazilians, and Taylor Negron and Bertilla Damas, especially Taylor Negron. You know, he's someone who shows up in movie after movie after movie. You know, he's just he's such a great character actor. And I feel like, yeah. you know, he doesn't get the sort of due credit he deserves for being such a genius. It's like this film is just rich with great performances. And, you know, while it may not have succeeded at the box office or succeeded even in the terms of, you know, the world of cult movies, the way that that we think they will. I do think that the more we celebrate it and the more we share it, the more people are going to enjoy the rich bizarreness that is nothing but trouble, starting with even just the title alone, which makes no sense. But, but we get into that. We get into <laughs> we all do. the anomalies. We get into what the hell's up with this title? Why does the poster look like the bonfire of the vanities? We dig into all of this. So I guess Michael and I probably don't need to say a whole lot more because we bring up so much that we want to discuss in our two interviews with our special guests. Yes. And why don't we just jump right in with the person who brought us this movie in the first place? It is his ultimate redemption. He is choreographer and friend of the podcast extraordinaire. It's Rory Davis, and he is truly nothing but trouble. And we're talking to him right now. Lots of little knots that need to be tied. A pair of knuckleheads walking side by side down the altar. You say to yourself, I will not falter, but you're thinking it. How did I get myself in this predicament? Saw the deaf cutie that made your heart sing. You hop to the shop to get a ring. A diamond. You hop to the shop to buy a ring. A diamond. You hop to the shop and got a ring. Well, welcome back, dear listeners. It is my extreme pleasure and distinct honor to introduce our next guest, who has been a collaborator of mine for now, God, over a decade. Can you believe it? We met long ago when he first came on board at Peaches Christ Productions to choreograph an entire pre-show dance around the movie Heathers. Yes, the iconic film Heathers. And then we were off and running. I don't even know how many shows we've collaborated on. It's that many. And we've gone on the road together. We've done so many things. And as an offshoot, I love that he has 
created his own fantastic universe of wild San Francisco. I guess you would call it performance art and also performance erotica. He is the co-creator of Baloney. He is the captain at Roreography. He is a very, very talented friend of mine. Also, one thing that probably people don't know who only know him as coach is that this person is maybe one of my most lauded pop culture friends because we share a love of movies and music that cuts very deep. And in our universe, you know, that is a very special thing. So we've shared a shared love of movies and music. And so when doing the Midnight Mass podcast. We asked him to come on a show that has since been removed, which we could get into in a minute. But he is back. He's our first and only guest so far to appear on more than one episode of the Midnight Mass podcast. He has that dubious honor. It is the one, the only, Coach Rory Davis. Yay. Thank you for having me. Everyone, get your warm Hawaiian punch ready. Let's do this. <laughs> Who are you going to cancel now, Rory? Is it Demi? Yeah, Is Demi. It... Demi's next. She's got to go. <laughs> Actually, it's got to be Chevy Chase. Well, no. true. <laughs> well, this, in a way, is uh, the Rory Retribution episode, uh, thusly named because when, for Rory. when we um, knew that we wanted to bring you back, we actually asked you to give us some other ideas of cult films that you were obsessed with. And you brought a few, and then we put it to a vote. And this one overwhelmingly um, from our listeners got a huge response, which I think is really interesting because in the pantheon of cult films, I don't think it's one that people immediately think of, but when you suggested it, I was like, oh, okay, I can totally see this. And you also have the distinction of being the person who introduced it to Peaches. Peaches. Yeah. I was like, Michael, what the hell is this? And then Michael was <laughs> like, oh, actually, it's really interesting and kind of explained it to me. And I think immediately I watched it, right? Like I was right. like, what? Somehow this movie was just totally off my radar. And then I watched it. And I hope this happens for a lot of our listeners. I was like, holy shit, how did I miss this? So Rory, thank you for bringing this bizarre, bizarre masterpiece into my life because it's such an anomaly. How did you first get into it? You know, what was your intro? I had friends growing up in Pennsylvania who were very rich. They had a carpeted basement with like Raymore and Flanagan furniture and sofas and stuff. And they had an uncle who worked at a video store. So they would get the illegal screeners with the text that would roll by that say like, do not copy. And this was in 1991. So I remember they had copies of like Popcorn, uh, Deceived, starring Goldie Hawn. Uh, Michael, they had Lisa, starring one of our all-time favorites, Hudson Hawk. Like we're talking like a bonfire of the vanities, like things that, you know, shaped me. Wow. Made me the person that I am. But one of the titles was Nothing But Trouble. Um, and this movie scared the living shit out of me <laughs> as a kid. It really fucked me up. And I just fell in love with it. I loved it so much. And it, it is it's one of those movies where when you find out someone else is aware of it, that has seen it, it's this real like lifelong connection that forms. So Peaches, I, it's sort of a bragging thing for me that that you had never seen it. And now, you know, here we are. Yeah, because the other movies that you suggested were all movies that made sense. And actually, were I think all of them are on our very, very long list. You know, Michael yeah. and I kind of 
constantly juggle. I mean, the nice thing about the Midnight Mass podcast is if this thing, um, you know, becomes successful enough that it goes on for years and years and years, we will never run out of content. That's how many interesting cult movies there are in the world. But this was not on my radar at all. And I, and you you brought it to us. So, you know, as someone who watched it for the first time more, you know, very, very recently, um, there's so much to love about it. And part of what I loved is that it's not good, right? Like, it's not <laughs> necessarily a good movie. Well, it's not good <laughs> by a certain lens, and it's right. fabulous by another. Yes, but what it actually absolutely. is, is very expensive. And that's something that I think we need to really, really key in on because a lot of times when we talk about these cult films, some of these movies that have gone on into the midnight movie Malou, a lot of them are made with like, you know, a pack of bubble gum and a prayer. But this movie had studio power behind it. And when uh, we did our other interview, we touched upon this briefly, but I love that you mentioned Bonfire of the Vanities because Bonfire of the Vanities was being made by the same studio in tandem while they're making nothing but Trouble. And because both of them are hemorrhaging money, one got a lot of attention by the studio and the other sort of didn't. And it allowed Dan Aykroyd to create this weird amalgamation of horror, comedy, grossness. And I just really want to jump in there because I think what draws people into this movie is the absolute excessive perversity of it, like the, the richness of it. So talk to me a little bit about just... Um, your take on the world that is is laid out and just the grandiosity, I guess. Well, that's the thing. It's like, I did hear that about Bonfire of the Vanities, that the studio was distracted by that. And the thing is, though, is that no one saw this coming, even though the fact that, like, everything that Dan Aykroyd did was really fucking weird. Like, Coneheads, all the characters that he had on Saturday Night Live, like, he had a really off sensibility like something was strange there all along so the fact that he was able to get free reign for something like this and i even heard that his original ghostbusters script was like way left field i think harold ramus came in and, and doctored it and made it what we know today so just the fact that he was handed this sort of like carte blanche and was able to go wild is so great and the fact that all these images like again since i was a kid that he was able to create that have like haunted me to this day like every time I'm with someone and they uh, roll through a stop sign. I get like the cold sweats, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> it's fabulous. It's so great. The, the set design, everything, the makeup of the of the babies and such, like just this vision that he was able to run with is so cool. You're right. Like Dan Aykroyd, if you really look at his specific sensibility, it was oddball. And in many ways, Ghostbusters could have been too weird, but it just was one of those weird wonderful things that just came together to be so brilliant and so he still gets a blowjob from a ghost let's not forget that that does happen <laughs> well and and he was brilliant enough to know that even though it was his story and he obviously is talented and he was a talented performer on snl and blues brothers and all of those things he knew to make it bill murray's movie and that really benefited him and it gave it this layer of comedy, you know, that sort of balanced the perversion. And I think with Nothing But Trouble, you go even weirder. You know, you still got this all-star cast, but somehow I love it. I absolutely love it because it's such an interesting sort of fantastic disaster in a way. And so uniquely, like, not you know, done with a sort of a sense of what should be popular or effective for audiences. It feels like an underground movie, 
with a massive budget. So let's dive in there. Like this is obviously a weird, weird film. And Michael brought up the size of the budget. And from what I've read, it went dramatically over budget, right? So they were distracted. But let's talk about like, what are some of the more extravagant things in this film? And I think we should just kick it off with a roller coaster. And what do you know about any behind the scenes stuff? Like, do you know any of these things? Like how it got made? I heard something that they like, people went all around and like it with uh, trucks and went to like, scrapyards and such to find like you know millions of toasters and things like that and the sculptures that were all over just to do the set design stuff and then i'm guessing the wider shots might have been like matte paintings like outside of the building and all but i mean like every frame when you look at it it's just filled like with really like on themed shit you know like every room was like you can tell that Akron kind of probably let these like everybody really do their thing and go wild which i love but the roller coaster it's a practical thing. It's crazy. I love it so much. I think if I wasn't so terrified of needles, I would get a bone stripper tattoo, but (laughs) it scared the shit out of me as a kid. I love, Oh my God, it's terrifying. And like a real practical roller coaster with like the mannequins on board and all of that. Like, and even uh, you get to see one of the poor man's Baldwin brothers get consumed by this thing. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) The poor man's Baldwin brothers. Uh, You know, what's really interesting is the bone stripper of course is, is something right out of, Uh, horror movie. I think every time we talk about this movie and has been made of in the press, a lot of people bring up the parallels between Nothing But Trouble and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But Bone Stripper is straight out of Texas Chainsaw 2. It's this like unhinged, like almost cocaine fueled, like let's go. And I am really, really fascinated by this sort of delicate balance that Dan Aykroyd walks in the creation of this movie where it is truly grotesque horror, but more than one kind of horror. You get the backwoods horror, you get body horror, you get sort of like cannibalistic horror, you get, um, you know, rural horror. Um, and I, I'm interested in your take on the horror elements of this and how they lend themselves or don't to the comedy. The things that really freaked me out about this were like, even as a kid, and did you guys put this together? Like the hot dogs, is that one of the Baldwins? <laughs> Well, it's, it's a certainly oh. gray-looking sausage, I'll say that. Right, it's a really gray-looking sausage. Right after that, so as a kid, I was like, are they oh. eating the are they eating the people? And then, like, you know what really fucked me up as a kid, too? Like, the shit moat that the Brazilianaires crawled yes. through? That scene, I thought that scene was so upsetting as a kid. And, like, that terrified me. And, like, the, the babies outside with the chopping thing that Demi Moore gets caught in. Like, it's just the grossest, grossness of it all. The bat room, that scared me as a kid, too. And it does seem, like, tonally, I think, this was sort of pitched as a comedy and I, the title was changed right from Balkan Balkanvania at first. So I think if, with the title change and the poster change and all of that, people just didn't know, still don't know what to make of it, but there's things about it that I think still work as a, as horror for sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the, the baffling, you know, parts of this whole thing is looking at what the fuck were they thinking when they changed that title? Balkanvania, even if you have no idea what the hell that means, it tells you something about what this film is and it delivers and nothing but trouble totally misleads you. That to me is like some sort of rom-com, you know, very silly, lighthearted kind of innocuous title. So, so you've got that. Then if you look at the one sheet for it, 
it's just the cast and the most generic, you know, here's a bunch of A-list celebrities, you know. I mean, yes, Dan Aykroyd has the, the makeup on, but that is not enough of a clue at all. So they obviously got cold feet. And I think it really, really did them a disservice because I would have seen something called Vulcanvania. <laughs> and if the poster had actually reflected this film the way it was, I would have seen it. But I'm sure that when it came out, I bet I looked at it, saw who the cast was, saw the title, and just kind of was like, whatever, you know. But if they'd actually marketed it for what it is, I would have gone to see it. So why do you think they switched gears, you know, at the last minute? I mean, I don't think that worked for them, but that to me is one of the most baffling parts. Do you think it's because it was so expensive? They didn't think they'd find a horror audience or a weirdo audience? This was sort of like... In like 91, if you think about it, too, like I actually looked back and it was sort of like pre-Scream, you know, so we were getting like Child's Play 3, which I do love, by the way. I like Child's Play Child's 3. Play 3 is great. Silence of the Lambs. Right. That's true. That's true. That sort of gave birth to prestige horror in many ways. Right. And, you know, this was more, as we know, it was more of a Texas Chainsaw 2 with a huge budget. In some ways, you could have positioned it as a Beetlejuice but yeah, you're right. It was a weird time. It was pre-Scream. They just didn't know what they were doing. I think like horror was in its like 99 cent bin era, kind of. You know what I mean? We were getting like Critters 3 and like the, I mean, I love this too, but like, I think it was like body oh, yeah. parts with Jeff Fahey and like, like things like that. Like it was sort of like horror had like, was like running its course and like Scream hadn't like done the adrenaline shot for the genre yet. So that's probably why they decided to market this. And then all the one-liners and things like that, that really aren't all that, that funny. And you do notice too, Michael, like, You've seen this a million times, so you know. Do you think that the title was an ADR line? Because you see Demi Moore, like, running away. You see the back of her head. And she's like, oh, you're nothing but trouble. And I was like, I wonder if that's an ADR. And they just made that the title. Mm. No, you know what? That's a great point. I really have not thought of it. But when I consider the scene, I did note when I rewatched it for the podcast how quickly it happens like it's almost like a throwaway moment. She's like, oh, and it's, it's very delivered in sort of like a Nick and Nora, like old, like universal, like old dark house way rather than the movie we're in. Like Chevy Chase does whatever Chevy Chase does. And she's like, no, you're nothing but trouble. And that, but then it's sort of like, that's not the movie we're in. You know? Nothing right. but trouble, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. And even further proves how messed up it all was, you know, and you know that Dan Aykroyd did not want to direct this film. That's one thing I did, you know, read about. But, like, in order to get it made, you know, he and his brother couldn't get it financed without a legit director attached. And I, my understanding would be that no director wanted to do it. Didn't John Hughes and John Landis both said no, right? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Well, it, and it's interesting because I think this leads us to a larger discussion about the industry at the time and the industry still where this thing happens where we want to put people creatively in boxes and we say like you can only be this one thing and the idea that Dan Aykroyd had accrued a uh, a a notoriety as a comedian put him in a box that by having him direct this people expected dragnet people expected the kind of like comedy that we got from dan Aykroyd. even ghostbusters as big as it was because of the harold ramis steering a little bit of the ship it's 
more of a family comedy, even though there's ghosts and spooky stuff. Then what happens is when like someone like Dan Aykroyd, Danny DeVito, another great example, because DeVito, when let loose as a filmmaker, is a very different person than DeVito as actor. I mean, I think he's doing more weird stuff now. But when you look at the kind of movies DeVito likes to make, both features and those weird like gore shorts that he does, you can tell he's like, this is what I want to do. And this is kind of like Dan Aykroyd's like, oh, I get to make something. If I'm going to direct this, I'm going to make the movie I want to make. And I don't think the public was ready or the industry was ready because it was like, this is the box and you're the second city SNL guy. And we don't expect you to have like weird cannibal sausage, drag queen daughter kind of movie, you know? Well, also too, Peaches, I mean, in a somewhat similar way too, like, you know, he was in that, all this makeup and, you know, was this directing this movie as this like monster baby whereas when you made evil you were gorgeous but you were under piles of makeup too so i was sort of picturing that i mean that piles yeah uh, excuse me (laughs) chapstick excuse me (laughs) a little dab here and there a little dab yes absolutely yes no but i thought of you in a way too directing all about evil yeah i'm pretty open about having hated that yeah yeah the layers of how tough that must have been so imagine being in that like you know the baby look and then like having to, to run the ship too. If I ever were to do a, a, a sort of a feature where I was in drag for the duration of the feature, I would not want to direct it, Yeah, you know? And if I get to make a feature again, which I will, it would be my thing if Peaches was going to be in it to be as minimal as possible. So that is directly related to the fact that I think a director I don't know how John Cameron Mitchell did it. Like, I just don't. I just think it would be so hard. And I look at something like Dan Aykroyd and you think of what a director has to do to make a movie of that size. And then you add having to do your own performance, which to his credit is one of the strongest performances in Nothing But Trouble. It is one of the best Dan Aykroyd performances. I think it is so good. It's like you can't do it all. It's just it's just too much, you know, and to sit in makeup and then to perform and then to direct and have to be available to fucking assholes like Chevy Chase. Like, you know, that's so much work. And actually, I think the people that really shine in this movie are Dan Aykroyd, Demi Moore. I think it's such a great movie to go back and watch and realize what a star she is and what a star she was and what a great performer she was. And then John Candy, you know, making it just look so effortless. And honestly, the other moment, and I, I brought this up with our other guest, the other moment that I just love so much that I thought was so special and so specific timing wise was the uh digital underground yeah. you know sequence like that was just so fabulous but the rest of the movie a lot of it hinges on Chevy Chase bringing a certain amount of magic to the film and kind of carrying it and I don't think he delivers Mm-mm. no not at all you know what back to your point about like di- the directing and the exhaustion and stuff Did you guys hear this that apparently Ackroyd like collapsed from fatigue and wasn't there. They, I, I just heard this. Wasn't there the day of the digital underground shoot? So he like they never crossed paths. And then they had the like you know the the writhing tube top girls come back and surround him while he's at the organ. And they shot that separately. Apparently oh. he hit his wall on the on that day where that happened. So I absolutely understand. I think that makes sense. But yeah, the digital underground thing. I remember the first time I saw the movie. I was thinking I was so freaked freaked out by the whole thing. Alternately, it would have been fabulous. But if I was, I was like, if I see Humpty Hump get eaten by this uh, Mr. Bone Stripper, I don't know what I'm going to do. 
Now that I'm older, I'm like, that would have been kind of fabulous, you know, but I'm, I'm glad they make it out. I think it's really interesting in this movie that has so many dynamic choices happening at once, sometimes to its benefit and sometimes not. One of the things that I think is really, really great is how awesome by and large the supporting cast is we mentioned even you know digital underground shows up and they show up but you mentioned the brazilianaires those two i want a whole movie about them in rio they're great and so i'm wondering fantastic uh, what chris (laughs) what are your favorite performances in this movie do you have a favorite character is it hard to choose does it change every time you watch it oh my god well yeah the brazilianaires are so fabulous you could tell like right off the gate the two of them knew what movie we were in but also let's not forget is it valerie bromfeld the machine gun wielding uh lady cop miss perda yeah she's great Oh my God, she's so fabulous. And and like uh, her final shot, she's in the outhouse that sinks into the ground. Like she's phenomenal. I, I think that she was an original, like she was on the very first episode ever of Saturday Night Live too. So she's like been in that Ackroyd, like, you know, John Candy, Chevy Chase, like circle, I guess too. But she's phenomenal. I love her. So she's probably my favorite if I had to pick. Really? Well, she, that's so great. She yeah. was part of a comedy team with Dan Aykroyd. They were in the first Toronto company of Second City. They joined together. So, like, that's actually an example of him, like, coming up with someone and staying true to that person, which makes me just love him more, you know? Absolutely. That- it's a whole family thing. It's great. That's the thing, too. I do picture being on, on set of, of this movie, too. And, like, I wonder, like, time-wise, how this did work out for Demi and, like, where this fell with Ghost. I know it was released after Ghost, but you have to wonder, like, like for certain people, like, with their careers and such, like, where this fell. And then if you look afterwards, there weren't too many hits, at least for a while, for all of them. So this really kind of pulled them down. But even with the huge success of Ghost, and I think it came out the same summer as Batman, because I remember those movies and I remember Flatliners and, you know, these were the movies that we were screening. That movie was just, you know, massive. It it almost you forget because it it hasn't really endured the way um, other hits like Silence of the Lambs have, you know, as far as being pop culture canon. But Mm -hmm. Ghost at that time was about as big as it gets. You know, it was Mm -hmm. Titanic. You know, it was so, so, so big. But I think it's good to position that because it goes without saying that the other people in this film, her male co-stars were also as big as it gets at that time. You know, so if you look at a Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd and John Candy, you know, any manager or agent who's positioning Demi to do the next best thing, it makes sense that they would want to show off her comedy chops or whatever, but they had to read that script. And I love it. I mean, I absolutely love it. But I don't know how you read that script and not know this is not Silence of the Lambs. What is this? For a genre people, of course, we know what where to make the connections. But for a giant multi-million dollar big budgeted film. So I I, I really appreciate Demi in it because I think she, I mean, God, she looks amazing. And she yeah. really pulls off a great performance. But yeah, I think probably her team was probably like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> Her her gay hairdresser doing her like Ralph Nagel hairstyle was like, where are we? Oh my God, that's so funny. That's essentially what her whole look is. It's like a a Nagel portrait. (laughs) (laughs) Right, she's a Nagel portrait like dipping or like running away from like dripping rats or bat shit and you know, all of that stuff. I want to say that besides Divine in the John Waters movies, this was really my first 
foray, like ex- exposure to drag, I think, honestly. And John Candy is, especially in the Aldona and in the, in the drag role, is so brilliant, so funny. I think that that's the comedy of the movie. He's so good. Yeah. That's why you've been hard for fat queens ever since. <laughs> that's why I'm here. Hello. Totally. <laughs> uh, well, John Candy is probably my favorite performance in this movie. And um, I think that over the course of this episode, both with this conversation now, as well as our other interview, we're heaping a lot of love on him and justly so. And what I think that people forget is that John Candy had a string of movies that were very cult tinged, you know, not all of them are household movie titles like Delirious or Who's Harry Crumb. But if you love him in this space, and you watch those movies at this time, he was willing to kind of get weird. And we also know that he liked the weird stuff. We know he was a fan of Divine. We know that he was all on board for this. You don't take on a movie like Nothing But Trouble just because your friend's making it and then play two parts, you know? <laughs> like That had to be like, a, oh no, I'm doing this because I want to do this. And he really showed up. And you see him showing up in ways that really help sell the movie. It is the thing, too, for such a big, loud, like, you know, ostentatious, crazy movie, despite his his looks, like the performance is pretty subtle. Yeah, but it works. It really works. Like the scene where I think it's Big Girls Don't Cry is playing and it's like he's getting changed behind the changing screen. and It's all his eyes. He knows what things look like on camera. It's such a great, great, funny performance and, and kind of terrifying, too. Let's be real. I think in this conversation, we are being hard on Chevy Chase, but it's because it's a matter of public record. Like he he has gone on public record that he only did this movie because of Dan Aykroyd. He didn't enjoy making it. He has publicly stated so. But what's interesting in retrospect, and I, I do think, you know, in deference to Dan Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd at the time also did stick up for Chevy Chase. He went on talk shows like Arsenio Hall, praised Chevy Chase's performance. And with Dan Aykroyd's blessing, despite knowing that Chevy Chase was sort of antagonistic about the film, it made me on this rewatch kind of relook at his performance, trying to see it like through the Dan Aykroyd lens. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting because I started, and this is going to be a little bit of a reach, but Rory, I feel like if anyone's going to go along with me, uh, it will be you. It made me think of Dennis Miller in Bordillo of Blood because that's another actor who clearly is disinterested in the movie that he's in. But because he's the straight man, the disinterest actually in some way lends itself to the weirdness that's going on around him. And I think that like when you can kind of separate the personal knowledge of what's going on behind the scenes, in a way it works. He's supposed to be a banking industry asshole thrust into this world of cartoon characters. Maybe it works. Or what are your thoughts on that? The Bordello of Blood thing is blowing my mind. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm still wrapping my head around that. But no, I mean, it's the same thing too. Like it's, it, it is all colored by the fact that, you know, the stories of him being an asshole and like a monster on set. And apparently things happen with Demi too. I don't, I, this was like pre-Twitter when people would keep their mouths shut. But I think there's things under the surface about how terrible he was. But no, I mean, I agree. He's supposed to be this kind of like piece of shit rich guy that thinks he can buy his way out of this. And it, it, it comes across. He did his job for sure. Yeah, not much acting required. <laughs> well, and let's face it, as we have seen with Elon Musk on the social medias, rich guys can't land a joke. So It's true. I know. We need Elon to go through uh, Mr. Bone Stripper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh my God, with a little mini Teslas. So, okay, Rory, now that this film has been brought to us, to me, Michael was familiar with it, but 
it has made me aware that there is a nothing but trouble cult out there, as is evidenced by the response to us putting this out there to our own listeners and them overwhelmingly wanting us to do this movie. What do you think it would look like to sort of bring this movie back from the grave? Like, do you think that there could be nothing but trouble screenings? Like, are, are is there going to be a nothing but trouble inspired baloney number? You know, Ooh, yeah, where do we I mean, go from here? A nothing but trouble baloney number. Let me think. Uh, actually, I, I would say that uh, Dan Aykroyd's brother as the uh, doorman is pretty hot, but I don't know if I could build a whole whole number, a number <laughs> around that. <laughs> But you know what? You can't yuck anybody else's yum. Maybe there could be a Bobo and Little little Devil duet, something like that. But yeah, as for a screening, oh my God, absolutely. I actually listened to the Bone Stripper song uh, by, by Dan Yankees. I listened to that at the gym pretty frequently. So if you need a number to that, Peaches, I'm ready to go. Okay. Would you want to play Denis or... Oh God, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like with, <laughs> with, with, with Nothing But Trouble, it might be fun to do more of a Midnight Mass style screening, an old Midnight Mass style screening where Peaches maybe hosts it working a Nagel type Demi look. Yeah. Um, yes, I think that would be it. But um, I think it would be fun to do do some sort of nothing but trouble. I don't know, celebration and screening versus, you know, a full-on parody show. Hot dog eating contest. That's right. Yes. <laughs> there could be a warm Hawaiian punch uh, cocktails. Oh my God. Yes, let's do it. Who would you want to play in a Midnight Mass? Nothing but trouble. And would, would the Midnight Mass stage show be called Nothing But B-U-T-T Trouble? Yeah. I'd want to be Val Valerie uh, Bromfeld though. Because when I do drag, it's usually kind of, looks like that anyway just like no matter how much i try yeah so just give me that wig and, and a machine gun i'm good to go for anyone that doesn't know baloney is rory's co-creation with michael phyllis it's billed as san francisco's only all-male gay review which is not necessarily don't take that at face value uh yeah. and, and baloney um i just went to their most recent show it is fantastic it's stripper meets burlesque meets drag performance meets performance art you really never know what you're going to see there it's also sketch comedy and erotica i mean it really is and you have to kind of experience it now um, baloney is typically presented in San Francisco, although you have brought it out into different um, markets. But there's a baloney um, documentary if people would like to learn more and they can't get to San Francisco. Tell us a little bit about baloney before we wrap up. Absolutely. So, yeah, baloney is uh, San Francisco's gay all male review, which is a complete lie. We do have women in it occasionally and uh, straight men and allies and the works and non binary folks and everything. And it's basically sort of a Carol Burnett show, but through the lens of stripping and comedy and gay stories and tropes and turning things on its head. So we perform at Oasis here in San Francisco behind a red velvet curtain and every time the curtain opens you never know uh what world awaits for you with each sketch or skit now peaches true or false didn't we didn't we make you tear up a few times at our last show one yes. the designing women rip and strip monologue it was literally one of the most inspired gay moments it was so gay and bizarre just to sort of let listeners know it was this muscle man who's huge andrew dombos who we both worked with many many times and i love him but he is a giant literally a giant just you know uh, of muscle and he comes out dressed as sort of a, a southern kind of hillbilly he comes out in a wife beater and overalls and basically begins presenting 
the sugar baker. What's her name? Julia uh, Sugar uh, Baker. Julia Sugar Baker. Yeah. The famous monologue, you know, about the lights going out in Georgia, while doing a strip, you know, moment. But he presents it in this sort of masculine, earnest, authentic way, and the audience, because it's so queer, starts like joining him in 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 saying the lines, and. At the end, the the designing women music plays as he's like hooping the yeah yeah you know fuck yeah yeah fuck <laughs> yeah as the designing women music oh my god it made me emotional it was so twisted and weird and and this disparate way of bringing queer feelings together like <laughs> this is sexually um, arousing while also being total camp and kitsch <laughs> well i have to say when rory was describing uh the show i had to stifle a laugh because when you were like it's like the carol burnett show i was like thinking of you know you guys exploding lube all over the stage at the grammy museum and i was like yes exactly like the carol burnett show <laughs> absolutely yes it's sort of like our drag shows too peaches where like 90 percent of it is just trying to keep things on the rails you know while the sets collapse on our head and stuff, but it's like, but in jock straps and just these guys are just phenomenal. They have so much heart. It's, it's amazing. It's, I'm so proud of it. It's awesome. We'll be back up at the end of September for Folsom Street Fair. So the last two weekends of September will be up. And I think that Andrew Dombos might have another monologue and this time. He might be reciting the formula for glue. A la Lisa Kudrow. Wow. No better reason to plan a trip to San Francisco because Terror Vault opens that final weekend in September. So you could come to San Francisco and check out the brand new Terror Vault show and also check out Baloney on the same weekend. Oh, my God. Book your trip. I didn't know we were competition. We're like nothing but trouble in the bonfire of the vanities here. Oh, my it's God. True. But but we're not because we have multiple nights and you can do both. So, you know, all yes. ships yes. rise, you know. Come to San Francisco, everybody. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, Rory, thanks for joining us yet again. We appreciate yes. it. And uh, we appreciate that you brought this filthy fucking deranged movie to our door. Before we go, where can people find you? Come check out Baloney at the last two weekends of September, sfbaloney.com. That's like nonsense, B-A-L-O-N-E-Y. And I also teach uh, an aerobics class called Roryography that's in the spirit of a Richard Simmons VHS tape where you just follow what I do in the moment to pointer sister routines. And that's in Dolores Park, um, out in the open air on Mondays and Fridays at 6 p.m. And that's roryography.com. Well, thank you, Rory. Thanks for coming on. Uh, you know we love you. And uh, who knows, maybe you'll be our first ever guest to make it on a third time in the future. Here's hoping someone gets caught up in a scandal. Okay, that was our interview with Rory Davis. Yeah, I'm so glad that Rory not only was on the podcast twice, but uh, <laughs> also got to bring us this film. And, and it's because of Rory that we're even discussing Nothing But Trouble. Rory's one of these people who just is a real film lover. Like, he goes to the movies a lot. He goes to the movies alone, which I think, you know, Rory and I are, I think, Two of the only people I know, maybe my friend Edwin, also the conductor I work with, he, I, I know he goes to the movies alone. But like there are certain kinds of people who just think it's so weird for anyone to go to the movies alone. And I've been going to the movies alone for years. Maybe it's less weird in L.A., but you know what I mean? Like it's a yeah. thing. And Rory 
and I go to the movies alone and then we text each other, you know? No, you're absolutely right. It's funny. When I was living in Pittsburgh, if I would go to the movies alone, people were baffled. But you're yeah, right. yeah. in Los Angeles, nobody bats an eye. Um, yeah. They just assume that you're probably like there to review the movie or something. Um, right. But Rory's devotion to movies and enthusiasm for movies is very evident. And I want to tell you that since we recorded our interview, Rory has messaged me several times to say, oh, you know what else came out in 1991? Mortal Thoughts. This also came out in 1991. And he's like been contextualizing the year that Nothing But Trouble came out via Instagram messages since we recorded. So he's still thinking about it even after we did the interview. And I love that because it shows how much he cares about the material and how much he cares about movies. I mean, he's truly one of us. Majorly. And the, and the way that Rory walked into my life, it was at a time when Midnight Mass had not yet exploded over to the Castro Theater, but it had exploded in San Francisco as far as, you know, we were selling out shows at the bridge. And I really admire anyone who just gets in touch with me and goes, look, this is what I can do. And I want to do it for you. And he sent me videos of his choreography and he sent me videos of him dancing. And he just wanted to be part of the Midnight Mass family. And once he got on that stage and I hired him to do the first you know, bit of choreography, he and I have been working together nonstop well over a decade. So he's just one of those people who is part of the freaky family and I just love him so much. And it's a delicious thing to get to talk about something like nothing but trouble. And, and in fact, this is one of many movies uh, over the years that Rory has sent my way, you know? So if, if you get a recommendation from Rory Davis for a movie that you haven't heard of, take it. Speaking of recommendations, if you want to see more Rory Davis or understand more about the world he comes from, the Baloney documentary film is available. I believe right now I saw it recently on Tubi. I think maybe it's on Amazon Prime, but it really gives you a great snapshot into this underground weird queer world that we all live in in San Francisco. And it's a very well-made film and it's a lovely documentary about something that's kind of on the outside looks sort of salacious and sexy and, and on the inside is about chosen family. So check that out. Now, speaking of salacious and sexy, Demi Moore, right? I thought you were going to introduce our next guest. <laughs> you know what, though? He would love to be equated to Demi Moore. I'm absolutely sure. Um, I was going to say, I think that she is so wonderful in this movie. And I yeah. think that because we talk about a lot of the other actors quite a bit. We talk about her quite a bit in this episode, too. But it is interesting. You know, John Candy, Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, Taylor Negron, they're all really known for comedy. And Demi Moore is not necessarily a comedian, but... She's really good at landing her jokes in this film. And she's so gorgeous. We talk about, I think it was with Rory, about um, the living embodiment of a Nagel portrait. And for anyone who doesn't know who Patrick Nagel is, he, he's the guy who did all those wonderful 80s portraits that were in every beauty salon, you know, in every shopping mall across the nation. Duran Duran's Rio album cover, of course, is a Nagel. It's sort of almost a dated look. She looks so 80s, you know, in yeah. this film, you know, but I love it. I think she looks so fabulous and she owns it and she's just so delicious and charming. Did we talk about on this episode, because this is, of course, um, of note to the Midnight Mass audience, how Demi Moore first got her start and, and what movie poster she first appeared on? Well, I certainly know that it was the I Spit on Your Grave poster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before she ever, and she's not in the movie. No. Uh, before she ever kind of appeared in films, she was a model who was hired to be the ass, basically, that we see in the, the sexy, tattered clothing, you know, 
butt cheek revealing poster for I Spit on Your Grave. That's Demi Moore. Well, and I don't know if you know this, Peaches, because uh, I know everything. You do? Yeah. Did, did you know that I'm friends with Camille Keaton, the star of I Spit on Your Grave? No. Now you do. So <laughs> so now you know everything. Um, yeah, I, I know Camille, and I had asked her about that because she said that she didn't know for sure at the time, because this was a long time ago that I asked her, but she said, but, you know, I know that's not my ass. That's what she said. Oh, so, really? Yeah. Oh, shit. Michael, you just dropped something. A name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a very familiar thing to you, right? <laughs> we had to interrupt our recording because I had to take a phone call. So I don't want to be gauche and say that it was John Waters. But yes, we did have to um, we did have to stop recording for a moment because my friend John was calling. Anyway, oh my. <laughs> speaking of fabulous people we're friends with, let's yes. get into it. Our next guest is a very, very dear friend of mine, also someone who was quite foundational in the early blogging era of queer horror. He had a blog called Faggity Ass Horror, which I still love. Uh, uh, he was an exec at Fearnet. He's an amazing creative. He has a lauded history on stage and screen. It's Jeffrey McCran, and we're ready to talk to him about nothing but trouble now. Welcome back, everybody. More than just an avowed fan of Nothing But Trouble, our next guest became known in the genre space for being the creator and voice behind Faggity Ass Horror, a foundational pit stop for LGBTQIA fright fans in the early days of the blogosphere. What's more, his appreciation and acumen for all things spooky led him to become an exec at the celebrated Fearnet, wherein he helped create blood-soaked programming for audiences near and far. Also a veteran of the musical theater scene, he is the creator and writer of Insuppressible, the absolutely unauthorized story of Leah Remini, which detailed the actress's escape from Scientology through song. A wicked talent and very, very dear friend of mine, please welcome writer, creator, curator, and much, much more. It's Jeffrey McCran. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I feel like Make-A-Wish. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely a thrill to have you on. And I... Uh, have to say first and foremost that this show has been one that I'm greatly looking forward to but only recently and that's because uh we were basically recommended this this title and I had to say to Michael what is this what what is this <laughs> I don't even know what this is and then as I read about it and Michael explained it to me I thought how did I miss this so let's start there very new to me uh, full-on obsession in, in in gear right now. Um, but when did you first discover this film? And and tell us about your love affair. I mean, I was thinking about it. I can't pinpoint the exact moment. It was truly a slow boil. It opened the same weekend, you know, as Silence of the Lambs and Sleeping with the Enemy. So no one was really tracking it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, it couldn't be more bizarre. It misses the mark on every single you know, possible way that a movie would be successful or, you know, love. So then it started playing and like here I saw it at the New Beverly in a double feature with Haunted Honeymoon, which ah, is like the perfect pairing. Totally. And it's every time you watch it, it's shocking. It's sick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's truly so like it's been in, you know, as Michael knows, we, we like movies that we like and we you know have carried them with us and i think this has been now more than 20 years i've been carrying this one around in my pocket as like a, a perennial like once a year movie 
it, it, every time I hate it. <laughs> but then I watch it again and again, and I can't stop thinking about it. So yeah, I couldn't pinpoint the exact moment, but it's definitely a, you don't forget it. Well, it's interesting because it is a movie that I very much associate with you. And, and through our friendship over the years, it's come up a number of times. And when this movie was brought to Peaches and I as a potential discussion on Midnight Mass and as a cult film, I thought, oh, it is a cult movie and it has the cult zhuzh. But I think it's a cult movie that's still finding its cult. So knowing that people like you who have been watching it every year since you discovered it it's, is really interesting I don't even sometimes, when thinking about this movie, know where to approach it from first, because it's a very odd mishmash of themes and talent. I mean, this movie on paper at this time should have been a huge success. You've got John Candy, Chevy Chase, Demi Moore, Dan Aykroyd, all these people sort of at the, the prime of their careers. But then it is this thing where Dan Aykroyd kind of leans into the da Dan Aykroyd that we as horror fans know he is, but I think the world wasn't really aware of like what his interests were. And I'm wondering if you think, generally considering this movie, if it was just too weird for people, why the disconnect and why are people coming back around to it? It's still so weird. It's a wildly expensive movie, first of all. Like you can't take that away from it. So it's it, it's a cult movie by design, by script and subject. It's, you know, a really, really expensive remake of Spookies. It's, you know, they, they go on a trip and they end up at a house where all this crazy shit happens and a lot of physically repellent VFX are on display. And then the dissonance kind of comes from, like you said, Dan Aykroyd as a person. He considers this a family comedy. He thinks this is like fit for, the, for everyone. And it couldn't be further from that. You know, and it, it's the tone is so wildly, it vacillates tone scene to scene. And a lot of that is the sort of, you know, the, you have alchemy, right? With Chevy Chase, it's hard to have alchemy, I think. He comes into something like a bulldozer, and he's like, this is the Chevy Chase product. And in this movie, it almost works because he's kind of playing Bernie Madoff. So you're not supposed to like him, but at the same time, he kind of has no chemistry with anyone else in the movie. Whereas Demi Moore is this sort of object that is looking to connect to everything. She's so good at being a movie star that you have these disparate elements in John Candy, who's a, you know, a journeyman, like whatever John Candy can make work, he'll make work times 10. So you have all these elements that none of them gel <laughs> at any given moment. And then it, they just keep piling on top of each other until you, you truly can't believe what's going on by the end. It's like, this is, this movie's still going. Yeah. This is going to be one of those episodes where we could just talk and talk and talk because, you know, getting into it, I think tackling the cast and knowing what we know about Hollywood and actually going back to what you initially said and putting it in the context of perhaps one of the most important horror movies of the 90s or even the last 50 years, you know, Silence of the Lambs, which, you know, swept the Oscars the year that it came out. For this to come out at the same time is interesting because I'm old enough that I can actually remember seeing Silence of the Lambs in the theater while I was in high school. In fact, I remember the night very, very well because it was the outbreak of the Gulf War and we didn't even know if the movie theater would be open because it was the first time in my lifetime that we had gone to war, right? And I remember that as a high school student. Sadly, of course, you know, it's all the norm anymore, but that was a big deal. This movie... As a Fangoria-obsessed, horror-loving teenager, you would think this film, especially the way that it plays out, would be totally on my radar. Somehow it came and went, and I knew nothing about it. And even in the cult stratosphere, I didn't know much 
or anything about it. And maybe heard about it here or there. I'm baffled by it. And, and that cast rundown that you just gave was so great. Now, lest we forget, Digital Underground just shows up, you know, in the middle of the movie. Tupac. You know, Tupac is, this was Tupac's acting debut, right? Now, one thing I kind of want to jump back to a little bit is the cast obviously shows up for Dan Aykroyd, I think. You know, th this is a bona fide Hollywood notable talent, you know. Demi Moore, like you say, is so good at being a movie star. She's so good in it, and she's so striking and so wonderful. And John Candy is magic, right? And of course, we can get into, I'm sure in a bit, John Candy and drag, which is wonderful. But Dan Aykroyd and his brother, and this is Dan Aykroyd's only, you know, directed feature. They described this film as, and I thought this made sense, Beetlejuice meets the Texas Chainsaw Massacre when shopping it around. <laughs> So what do you think of that sort of elevator tagline? It's Beetlejuice meets Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's missing the sort of whimsy and joy of Beetlejuice. I think that would have elevated it to a place, you know, where, you know, it would have stuck in a different way. It would have hit in a different way. You're right. Like Silence of the Lambs and the Gulf War were not something they could compete against. I think the Fangoria is the really interesting element because I was the same way. I wanted anything that was peak Fangoria. And I think the studio didn't want to admit it was this kind of movie. I don't think they wanted to lean into the fact that it's a monster movie. Not at all. Look at the marketing for it. It would have been on my radar. But you look at of that course. poster and it doesn't tell you that it doesn't say Beetlejuice or Texas Chainsaw. It does not prepare no. you for Bobo and Little Devil. And that's <laughs> like my when I yes. think about the movie, like I watch the movie and it's like a slog. And I'm and even like talking about it, it's hard to really get into like what we're doing is complicated because it doesn't follow a narrative that's, you know, easy to like, oh, that's my favorite part. And this happens. Yeah. But then by the time it gets to Bobo and Little Devil, it's like so out there and surreal and good. <laughs> like that sequence is so elevated and so bizarre, genuinely and out of context that that's why it's a cult movie. And you have Demi Moore in these outfits that are kind of doing the acting for her <laughs> a lot of times where, you know, she's not sure of what her character is or why she's there. Because I still seen it 20 times i couldn't tell you what she's trying to accomplish at the beginning of the movie <laughs> they go on a road trip together in the car and you know that their neighbors pop into thank god ronaldo and fausto because they steal the movie taylor negron king amazing they really are incredible character actors and do a fantastic job of the film yeah and to me that's the movie the movie is ronaldo and fausto and bobo and little devil and everything else kind of just is the frosting around their cake. Well, Demi Moore's costuming. Yeah. Her shoes are a violation, though. She should be in jail. She's wearing a romper with those shoes. And, they, and, they, and this is how you know it's straight people who made this movie, because they do a close-up on that sick fuck shoe. Like, they think, oh, yeah, look, we're crushing this. She looks so good. Right. <laughs> and it's like the sickest grandma shoe. It's interesting that Peaches, you mentioned that the studio didn't know how to market it, but I think that the studio didn't know what to do with this movie even when they were making it. And this is the rare instance where the studio oversight was non-existent, which any one of us working as a filmmaker knows that usually when you're working on a movie at that level, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. But for context, we talk about the Gulf War, we talk about Silence of the Lambs, and that's what happens when Nothing But Trouble comes out. But while they're making Nothing But Trouble, the studio's already putting out a fire elsewhere because they're making Bonfire of the Vanities, which is hemorrhaging oh. money. So basically the studio's too busy trying to stop Bonfire of the Vanities from being a disaster piece, so they just task Dan Aykroyd 
to fix the movie himself. And what he ends up doing is spending more money and doing whatever he wants. So then when the movie comes out, I think that they were just sort of like, what is this? And I kind of love that because I love that Brian De Palma kind of allowed Dan Aykroyd to make this movie in some some way, shape or form. But I don't know. I think there's there's a lot to unpack there because this is a movie that does not lack for excess, you know, which usually is not the case in a cult film. A cult films usually do not have the resources available and you make do. He had every resource available in this movie and instead goes nuts. It's definitely an auteur movie for sure. And, and, and the thing is watching it for like, you know, the hundredth time last night, he's really good in it. Yes. Like he's giving a, a really good performance. He totally loses the Dan Aykroyd mm-hmm. in, in the old man, you know, obviously like the low hanging fruit is the penis nose. Like uh, I, that never interested me because it's very like, it's, it's straight humor. It's not, it's not actually subversive. Whereas like the Bobo and little devil fat suits <laughs> and them just kind of covered in shit. That's subversive. That's rock and roll. Like I want that talking about they, they can't lose weight because they eat too much cereal. That's scripting. <laughs> that's, that's, give me that movie. But so it's like, it's fascinating though. Cause it all exists at the same time. Like you said, more is more is more. And no one decided to kind of cobble it together. And I think that's why it doesn't really have a tone because it doesn't ever gel. It's just these disparate elements. Some of them work extraordinarily well, like the Brazilians and others like Chevy Chase. It almost is camp in that none of his humor lands. Not one joke is funny. Not one bit works. And he thinks he's crushing it. It's so weird. It is really a hot mess in a lot of ways. And probably if I'd seen it in 1991, because I was a teenager, I was going to movies like Silence of the Lambs and able to literally have my mind blown. You know, I mean, I remember my mind was blown by Silence of the Lambs. Like, you know, sitting in that theater and I will never forget Buffalo Bill putting on those, you know, goggles and that whole sequence just yelling at me, you need to be making movies. This is what you want to do. This is magic. And I think I would have not seen the value in Nothing But Trouble, but seeing it later, like now, and knowing more about the industry, you know, having more context for who these people are as far as just legendary performers. I mean, John Candy, Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, and recognizing that Chevy Chase is flat as a pancake in this film. I mean, just completely flat. Dan Aykroyd, like you say, is excellent. Totally great. And I agree with you that the penis nose is just like stupid, you know, like it in not a good way. But what I do love about this film and what I, I think is maybe the queerest stuff in it for me is the design. And I think getting into sort of the design, especially by the time they get to the, you know, the Mr. Bone Stripper, you know, I, 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 I'm watching it going, what the fuck? There's a fucking roller coaster in this movie, you know? The, the 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 train sets you know at the dinner table the look of the house the look of the town let's talk about the design because for me I think that's why I want to watch it again and again totally yeah. and it's deeply the bone stripper thing is deeply unsettling too yeah. it, it does hit the horror movie Texas Chainsaw chords because there's something really off about the fact that it's playing for humor. Like when I was a little kid and would watch Remote Control on MTV, remember that? Yeah. And they would pretend to kill the people. I didn't understand that that was a bit. And I would get really upset. And this sort of does that same thing where it's like it doesn't 
flag like they're really killing people yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and like in this way the visual is contrasting the subject we're seeing this like you said amazing production design i mean the crew on this movie no expense was spared and you see it and that's like apparently it was like a two mile set they built the whole thing like to be a real junkyard and a real mansion it was all practical a two everything mile in the set, set? dressed all those scenes where they're driving into the set are practical they wow. didn't they didn't fake it so it's like Barbie. He had no oversight. Yeah, totally like Barbie. Except <laughs> this, this script. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> wow. The other in line with the production design, I think that the costuming is what elevates the movie. It's Deborah Landis, and agreed. Everyone has even even Chase. His suit is doing more work than he is. It's their costumes are gorgeous. They're really elevated, and and she has these coats. I mean, the her coat is doing all the acting in the beginning. And apparently, they shot in order, so that's mm. why she doesn't quite understand where she is or what she's doing. And then by the time she's in that romper, she's on fire with getting movie star to me. But the costumes are all spectacular. When you talk about the Bone Stripper specifically, you mentioned how you know that beat is played for comedy, but it's also very off. The idea that they are legitimately killing people, and that takes me back to something we talked about at the beginning where Dan Aykroyd viewed this as his kind of version of Texas Chainsaw, which I think is really important because one thing we know about Texas Chainsaw is that Toby Hooper thought of that movie as a comedy, even though the world did not. And so I'm wondering if there's one synergy between Hooper and Aykroyd in terms of their senses of humor, which is a whole other discussion. Isolating that idea, one thing that you said to me when I asked you about being on this episode via text and something that you mentioned here at the beginning of the show is that you had gone to the Nubev to see a double feature of Haunted Honeymoon and Nothing But Trouble. And I'm really interested specifically in the synergy of both of those movies because in each case, they're movies directed by a comedian and their only directorial effort. Haunted Honeymoon being Gene Wilder's movie, this being Dan Aykroyd's. And they both are referential to a kind of horror movie. Specifically, if you look at uh, Haunted Honeymoon, it's more of that like kind of RKO, Universal Monster, Old Dark House kind of thing. And then this being Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And both of them also feature a very famous comedian in drag, Dom DeLuise and John Candy. So it's sort of like they have this interesting synergy. But I would argue that Haunted Honeymoon caught its audience quicker because I think that in a way that grand guignol style of old timey movie lent itself to the comedy. Whereas I'm thinking that maybe nothing but trouble, people are still trying to attach themselves to the chainsaw of it all. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Of course it is. And they both have musical numbers, which is, you know, in this case, digital underground. And in that one, the ball and the jack and they stopped the movie. It's like so good. It works so well. But then also, I think you're touching on something, you know, I, I mentioned is the chemistry the chemistry of Gilda and Jean, that comes through. And Dom DeLuise, they genuinely seem to enjoy each other and therefore they're having a blast. This feels more fraught, which does kind of work with Texas Chainsaw. Texas Chainsaw, I'm sure we all know it was hell to shoot. And, you know, because of the, the circumstances, because of to get that look and that vibe was not a good time. It was not the Barbie set. So I think it's in line with, you know, what it's trying to do. But that's why one was quicker to grab an audience. Haunted Honeymoon's charming and winning. And that's, you know, true of Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner. 
Whereas this is Chevy Chase's movie. And, you know, <laughs> as we know now about Chevy Chase, anyone in Hollywood, it's like, you know, Barbara Streisand stories. You get these great stories. Everyone has a Barbara Streisand eating off her plate story. <laughs> and like in, in uh, Hollywood, if you're around long enough, everyone has a Chevy Chase was really awful to me story. Even someone on this podcast. What? <laughs> <laughs> but, but we, I, 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 I won't push for the tea. It reads. It's part of why reality TV is such a big deal. You're playing yourself, you know, to a degree. And, and we become attached to stars because of what they bring. And what Chevy Chase brings, certainly at this era, post-National Lampoon, post-success, post-SNL, where, you know, his shit didn't stink. He therefore didn't have to be invested in being a team player in this bizarre, bizarre movie other than showing up. Whereas you yeah. see with Demi and, and all the other actors who are of, you know, a more come up quality, they're working really hard and they're making it work and they're making it land. I don't think anyone was surprised who watches movies the way we all do to hear that Chevy Chase was an asshole. No one was going, wait, what? You know, people, uh, yeah, that kind of tracks, you know, and he's such an asshole in this film. And part of what makes him an asshole isn't the writing. It's not the character. It's what the actor's energy is bringing to the film, especially when you've got John Candy is so magical and he's so likable. Yeah. And Demi Moore is so likable, you know, in, in this way that she could be, the whole look could have been so cold and off-putting and stuck up. And she makes it know, work. She totally makes it work. And, um, and Dan Aykroyd, as the old man, is just delivering a performance, like a big, giant, fun performance. But you're right. It is Chevy Chase's movie, actually. And the fact that he's so kind of not in it is a bummer. And I think the Haunted Honeymoon comparison is really interesting. And I actually think this is something where we could look at a movie where they knew how to market Haunted Honeymoon because the marketing for that film with Dom DeLuise and Gene and Gilda and the style of it and what they were sending up, when you went to the theater you got what you thought you were going to get, and then some. It made sense. Yeah. Yes. Whereas this, I keep looking at the poster for this film. <laughs> <laughs> like the one sheet that they settled on is so bizarre because you're like, this tells you nothing about what this movie is other than who's in it. And of course, there's star power. It almost feels like they gave up on trying to even market it at all correctly. Yeah, the trailer is really odd, too. The trailer it's only horrible. focuses on the throwaway bit of him marrying John Candy. Yeah. And, like, that's not actually a plot point. It's, like, it's in the movie. Yeah, it happens. But, like, there's so much going on around it that's actually what the movie's about that it's bizarre that that's all they show. And the trailer doesn't give you any sense of the wildness of a Texas Chainsaw, Beetlejuice, horror town, Twilight Zone, whatever no. way that they could have spun it to make it interesting, especially for us genre fans. The fact that they almost hid the fact that it was gross or or genre. They do. It's bizarre. The germ of the story is so relatable, which is the gag of the movie that's so repellent and sick. I'm a city person. I grew up in the city, Knockwood. Like, I own my privilege. And it is scary whether it's Hills Have Eyes or, you know, Wrong yeah. Turn. When you go to the countryside and yeah. you don't know what you're going to land on or, God forbid, the police are scary. And this movie's about that. You get pulled over in a small town. It's not going to be a good time. And, you know, you're, you have no power. That's a germ of an idea that is relatable profoundly. That is totally. a story that, like, it's totally an easy in. Mm -hmm. And yet none of the material ever even mentions that. Like, they show them getting pulled over, but not to the extent of 
oh, you know, I'm a fish out of water and no, I have, you know, this is how it's done in a small town. And basically I'm stuck in another country essentially because yeah. there's, a, yeah. there's a government here. That would have compelled me to at least be interested in the film. Or know what it's about. But you know what's interesting about Vulcanvania, the, the town itself, <laughs> is for as ultra as this movie is and sort of outside of reality, once we get into that weird house, into the chainsaw of it all, if you lived in Western Pennsylvania, like where Peaches went to college or near where I went to college, those towns exist. There's an authenticity yeah. to that sequence where Chevy Chase and company are driving through the town itself. And I'm like, oh, this looks like some of the parts of rural Pennsylvania that are very accurate and very true. And I really kind of commended uh, the filmmakers for, for making it so true to life, but not even just in aesthetic, but like in the history, the idea that this town was once thriving, but because of strip mining and because of coal mining, the town is now depressed. That's a reality of a lot of towns in that area. Yeah, yeah. And... I mean, the fact that that town is based on the rumbling and the, the the burning underground, That there's a real place called Centralia, Pennsylvania, which still has a fire under it and is an abandoned town that that's based on. That's, that's also what they based Silent Hill on. So the fact is there was like some thought put into the landscaping of the movie. So then it's wild to me that then it goes full like fucking Merry Melodies once we get to the house, you know? The fact that we're talking about it and we aren't even talking about it is why this is a cult movie. This yes. is a why teaches you're totally spot on in that the cult is just sort of building now, but this clearly isn't going away. It's definitely something I think that is it's gaining steam because the more people that watch it, it's truly every time you see it, it's a different movie. Yeah, yeah to be fair, Michael said the cult was building now, but I, I like to take uh, credit for his shit too. Um, <laughs> and I am a member of the new cult. And this was a movie that, full disclosure, our other guest, Rory Davis, we ended up having to pull an episode that he was originally on because... Of things. Yes, because Just of things. things. Like, you know, Howard the Duck being canceled. You know, and so we uh, went back to Rory and said, okay, we are so sorry. You did that episode for us and you contributed so much. Give us four or five titles and we will make it work. If none of them are on our list, this is kind of Rory's choice. He gave us great titles. I mean, such good titles. But this was the one where I was like, what the hell? What is this? Like the other ones were all like, oh, totally. Oh, my God. Yes. All of them were on our list. And yeah. so Michael said, said, gave me like a little bit of this, right? But it was enough for me to be like, what? So I watch <laughs> it. And I'm like, oh, no, this is the one we're doing. <laughs> I am obsessed with this. And now I'm going to do my best to grow the cult even bigger. So, yeah. you know, here we are. And we're going to no, we need to know. have Volcomania parties yeah. where we eat hot dogs and do uh, Liza Minnelli contouring like Demi has with her chin does not match. her. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, to be fair, I do think a lot of the films that we cover on this podcast have this in common, which is that they come out, they're reviled by critics, they do terrible business at the box office and they find their audience, you know, over time. Wouldn't it be cool to do a screening and invite Mr. Aykroyd? Because I bet he'd show up for that faster than he'd show up for a Ghostbusters screening, right? Because sure. that movie, that's his smash hit. That movie's gotten all its trophies and prizes. But here's a movie that he gets it. 
he obviously likes cult movies. He obviously likes horror. You know, he didn't want to direct this. And the other thing that was interesting, he and his brother came up with the idea for this after they saw Hellraiser. I still don't, I still don't kind of make that. They, they saw Hellraiser and they were like, let's do a horror movie, you know. Um, <laughs> there's not really much Hellraiser going on in this film. But um, I would love to just get him to see that there's so many of us out there who are really enjoying it. And when we put a poll up to see what movie we might possibly want to do based on Rory's suggestions. This did numbers, basically. Yep. Jeff, you should be encouraged. Your, your contribution. Great. I take credit for really building, nurturing, and turning showgirls into a cult movie. But I think you should take credit for nothing but trouble. <laughs> <laughs> But wait, Michael, I'm interested because we talk so much in real life. You know, I, I touched on the sort of subversive quality of, I think, Bobo and Lil Devil definitely are what do it for me and paying it over. Do you see other things in this movie that, you know, the spider sense of queer sensibility? Because it is not a queer movie. It accidentally backs into it by just being so repellent. No, but you know what's interesting is often on Midnight Mass, Peaches and I, and we joke about it from episode to episode that our listeners are like, oh, what are they going to find as queer about this movie? And because yeah, there totally. is often a queer element to a lot of the movies we watch. And it's yeah. it's true that through the lens of like comedy, but especially this era of comedy, which was still very much a boys club, it's a little harder to find the kernel of queerness, unless of course you like focus on Demi. But as obvious as it is to say, and then I'll unpack it a little more, John Candy and drag is, of course, the gateway here, but it's more so than I think people realize because John Candy famously was also a huge fan of Divine. There's a famous like photo spread where he dressed as Divine because he loved what Divine did. And I think that John Candy, if you look at John Candy's body of work outside of the Home Alones and the John Hughes kind of connection, he would do movies that pushed against what was the norm. He got queerness in the transgressive way, maybe not queerness in the LGBTQIA way, even though he seemed friendly to that, but his willingness as a big star to do the queer thing in non-queer movies is interesting. And I think mm -hmm. it's also what really pushes the kind of engagement. And we need to have straight allies like that, assuming, of course, that, you know, that's how he identified. We, we, we don't know anybody until we know somebody. But John Candy is someone like Kevin Smith bumping up against queerness, realizing some of the queerness he put in his movies wasn't correct and amending it, like wanting to learn, wanting to grow, wanting to be party of it to help and celebrate. That's great for queerness on screen because if we're only acting in a bubble, the queerness is only incestuous, I guess, you know, if that makes sense. So yes. I think that John Candy brings the queerness to this movie, even if he didn't intentionally do so. It's the SCTV roots. Yeah, because that's yeah, he would he would do divine. And then, you know, I think of SCTV, I think of the Brenda Vaccaro bits. SCTV was a queer, you know, utopia, even if it wasn't literally. It definitely had a queer sensibility. That's yeah. for sure. And bringing up SCTV and John Candy's interest in divine and John Candy doing drag in this film. And I think it's interesting, Michael, that you say straight in quotation marks because we don't really know. This is why I think we're questioning it. Not because we think he's gay or queer no, or whatever. No, no, no. It's yeah. because the representation is so respectful. It yeah. does not feel like a straight comedian, a straight male comedian doing drag. It feels like someone who's a fan of drag trying to do drag 
in a way that's actually respectful. And even Dom DeLuise in, in Haunted Honeymoon doesn't feel that way. Robin Williams, total queer ally. Mrs. Doubtfire is fabulous. It's joyous. But it doesn't feel like drag. It feels like what it is. You know, I, yeah. I think people will call it drag. I love that they have the Harvey Firestein moment in the movie. That was because Robin Williams wanted to acknowledge the queerness of drag performance. Tootsie does not feel like drag. Some Like It Hot does not feel like drag. But John Candy in this movie and the way that she and see, I even want to call her she. It feels like drag to me in the costumes. Like you said, Jeff. Her fucking costumes. I mean, this isn't a straight guy, you know, <laughs> in no. a bad dress. This is like no, it's a, gown. a gown that was custom designed to fit John Candy's body and to give her a silhouette. And let's face it, there's a lot of divine going on in this sort of performance. I think it's interesting that the fact that they chose not to use his voice at all. They wanted it to not lean into the ha-ha comedy of like the lowbrow of it yeah it feels a little more queer only because it seems sort of nice or respectful it does it's not the obvious straight guy drag shtick she's got inner life yeah so one thing that you brought up is how the trailer made more of the fact that chevy chase marries john candy in this than is actually present in the movie which is true it's sort of like a, a sub subplot of of what happens towards the end but it does play a major part of the film's final moments it's a big part of the ending and one thing that i discovered upon doing research about this movie is you know, for all of the craziness that was going on and all of this sort of construction and reconstruction and excess to the max is they didn't really know how they wanted to end this movie. I guess they shot multiple endings and this is the movie they kind of landed on. And it's like the ending that they just kind of had. The crew didn't love it, but it's sort of like is the one that worked. And we get that. Like I mentioned Mary Melodies earlier. We get Chevy Chase's sort of like yeah. out print on the wall, like running out credits. Yeah. What? is your take on the ending does it work for you do you no it's a button it's a button you know what i mean like and so i feel like the movie ending like you're saying that is great context because i didn't even know that the movie ending with the big set and all the extras and you know the action sequence is great right and i feel like we're respecting demi's arc and we're having you know it's a proper conclusion to the movie the Looney Tunes button is very in line with Chevy Chase. It's kind of a fuck you. Oh, you're invested in this? Fuck you. And like, that's my take on it, just because I think the movie's bizarre and does a lot and they didn't spare any expense. And therefore, I don't want to feel like that was all sound and fury signifying nothing. Or as Doris Roberts says, what a what a silly waste of resources this was. I'm still baffled by it all in, in many ways. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like it does track and that's part of what makes it so magical. If it were more logical, it probably wouldn't be nothing but trouble. The fucking title. I don't get the title either. You know, I I, I feel like, why is this the title for this it's film? It's like a Nancy Myers like middle-aged woman movie where yeah, you know, like a rom-com, nothing yeah. but trouble. Yeah. It's just like words words that don't mean anything because yes. it's like not making you the studio doesn't want to actually make a decision on what the movie. It was Valkandania up until like a week before release. Really? And then I yeah, did. and then the studio was like, you have to call it nothing but trouble because I think there's a throwaway line where Demi Moore says, "You're nothing but trouble." She does, but Valkandania would have told me so much more about what That's this the could, movie, you know. Yeah. 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 Wow. But they didn't want it to be Vulcanvania. They didn't want Beetlejuice. They wanted something. Something they did not have. Sorry. I mean, they spent a billion dollars. And this is also, you can imagine, as good as Demi is, this is Demi post 
Ghost. So this is a rate movie for her. She got her full rate because Ghost was such a hit. So they had spent all the money. So they wanted to try to be a quadrant movie. And this couldn't be further from that. Well, it is interesting that even though this was immediately met with critical and commercial failure, uh, and we're talking about how it's only now finding its cult, I think that the, the trickle of the cult has always been there because of home video and because of folks uh, like you, Jeff, who've been talking about it. And to that point, I found out that at some point, a magazine listing movies that they felt deserved sequels, this was in their top 10. And I'm just sort of like trying to wrap my brain around that. But okay, this is what a podcast like this is all about. If there's a sequel to Nothing But Trouble, what does that look like to you? I mean, obviously it's a musical. <laughs> Demi has to be reunited with Bobo and Little Devil and they unionize. There's a lot of potential. She always has the lipstick on, even when she's completely fucked up. She's got her police outfit on, having just showered, but she has this like full 1991 lip. It's so good. What about you? What would you do a sequel with? You're the you're the pro. It's got to sort of be just in the same line of the Hooper of it all, right? Like if this was Texas oh. Chainsaw Massacre, let's get beyond the Valley of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What the original sequel was going to be, where it's a whole town. So like, let's go into the town. Like what we see is their house, but we know that town's there that's under their thumb. Let's experience the motel hell version of Nothing But Trouble. That's what I would want to see. More family. Okay, before we wrap this up, I want to talk a little bit about Bobo and Lil Devil. (laughs) What is going on? So good. The voice she uses with them is the same voice that I use with my dog, which is mortifying. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... So why are they the way they are? And I mean, they're not, I guess they're not allowed to live in the house. Um, They're not allowed to live in the house and they eat too much cereal. That's what we know about them. Is that why Um, they're the way they are? Presumably. I mean, it's borderline problematic. It's on the edge. They're suggesting some stuff that's like, oh no, oh Yeah, it's oh, our no. little secret. Like, the more we talk about it, the more, you know, this movie's going to be canceled. Leave some mystery for the kids. But, like, they're my favorite part of the movie, and they are definitely the least 2023-friendly part of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and how bizarre that Dan Aykroyd decides, okay, I didn't want to direct the movie, but now I'll direct the movie. And then I'll play... Not one, but two parts in the film that require a ton of, you know, makeup and special effects. Like, what hell, as someone who knows what it's like to be in a movie that you're directing with a bunch of makeup, it is hell. You know, it's such a weird decision. I read somewhere where he he did say that he regretted it later. Um, it's the better for it. You know, we keep finding new things to talk about, but that's part of why this works. That's what makes this movie, you know, next level is that it's of the post Elm Street, K&B, Tony Gardner effects level. Like the effects in this movie are real practical yeah, effects true. and they're on par with what we were looking at in Fangoria at the time. Yeah. Like that's the line to Hellraiser and the line to Texas Chainsaw is that this movie did not spare any expense as far as the the monster makeup. Yeah. It's just that instead of Freddy Krueger, instead of, uh, you know, Frankenstein, yeah. you're getting these sort of Bobo and Little Devil and, you know, <laughs> the judge. Yeah. Right. And I know that that's your favorite moment. I have to say that maybe mine and M- Michael, let's hear your favorite moment. One probably is the roller coaster prop for me, you know, because it's just so extraordinary. But also the thing that surprised me was how much I loved the sort of 1991 
device of sticking digital underground in the middle of this film, doing a full-on musical number and allowing them to be digital underground. You know that, yes, they're they're playing parts where they're, what, they were in trouble for speeding or something, but, um, you know, they, they do this whole thing. I loved that. And I actually thought it worked beautifully. And it was just such a nineties thing to throw them in the middle of the chaos. And the movie's so tasteless that I was worried it was going to go another direction with them. Right. And every time I watch it, I cringe like, oh, no, what's going to happen? And it actually ends up being a kind of the best part it's, of the movie. It is. Yeah. It really is a great moment in the film. And it and it gives the movie that break that we want, right? Yeah. So it's sort of like, it's almost like a joyous intermission. Absolutely. <laughs> I love horror movies that have a location. My favorite thing about certain era of like the dark castle horror movies is the actual house on haunted hill i love the house from the haunting i love the house in casper i love a house that's also a character and you know for better or worse this house is a character so i really really love the sequence where chevy and demi moore are going through the house i think the dinner scene with that terrible terrible hot dog is great because that's so rocky horror as well oh my yeah, god yeah you're right it's spot on rocky horror i didn't even think of that so as we're wrapping up uh jeff at the beginning of the conversation you uh alluded to the fact that you've been watching this movie for years you watch it at least once a year uh you've been with it for a long time and something that i like to ask all of our guests uh because cult movies are movies we carry with us so from the time you first saw nothing but trouble to now how has your relationship with this movie changed if at all it hasn't because this movie's impossible to get a handle on. That's the interesting thing. I wish I could say I have an arc with this movie, but I don't because every time I watch it, it's a different movie. That's fair. I love the purity of that answer because I think that's why those of us who are discovering it, and, and some of us like myself very recently, are interested in and in revisiting it. And I'm interested in going to a, a screening of it. Absolutely. I want to see it with other weirdos. And I want to see Dan Aykroyd come out and talk more about it today. And and also, I want to get to see him see the audience that's found this film. So I think there's more to come. You know, I think yes. this is the, the beginning of a, of a of a bigger, you know, movement. And Jeff, you're our leader. Can't thank you enough. And thank you. for This is my life's work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is what it's all come down to. We're all counting on you. And uh, Dan Aykroyd is counting on you. And, um, you know, we can't thank you enough for coming on uh, the show and talking to us today. Thank you both so much. I'm thrilled to be here. What a joy. There you have it. That was our fabulous interview with Jeffrey McCran. That was just so great. And I love his passion for the film and his love for the film really came through in that interview, especially what what are those boys' names that he's obsessed with? The weird, freaky kids that Dan Aykroyd plays one of them. Bobo and um, <laughs> Little Devil. <laughs> okay. I was surprised. He's like, he's like obsessed with them. <laughs> well, I mean, when you think about how grotesque this movie is and also the era of creature feature weirdness i actually was thinking about this recently because uh brendan and i went and saw the new ninja turtles and it was really gross in the way that i I forgot about how there was a period coming out of the 80s into the early 90s where a lot of our pop culture mainstream pop culture was sticky and slimy and it's like you get like 
that early era of Ninja Turtles, the Toxic Avenger. Garbage like, Pail Kids. Garbage Pail Kids. I mean, kids. you know, that was disgusting. Yeah, we loved it. And I think that these giant man babies are so in line with that weird cultural moment where, and like, and Jeffrey is someone who loves all that stuff. He's a fan of pop culture. Yeah. He's a fan of pop culture of that era. So it, of course, makes sense to me that he uh, really was drawn to those characters because when I think of our childhoods and our teen years and the things that were pop culturally uh, thrust upon us, it makes sense. And they are truly the unique anomalies of this film in a movie full of unique anomalies. That's right. And I, I actually thought it was fun that they were the heroes for him of the movie. <laughs> um, and, and I love that you contextualize it that way because, you know, it's so funny. I was just talking for another project about gross out films and how the 80s had never made the connection between things like we grew up with Garbage Pail Kids. Like that was a that was a phenomenon. And well before the movie came out, the Garbage Pail Kids movie, which honestly should be on our list for Midnight Mass. Um, but well before that, you know, that that those trading cards and those stickers and everything like that, that was huge. We all loved it. They were hilarious, you know. And it was maybe one of my first um tastes of of subverting something that was pop culture, right? They were born out of the country's obsession with the sweet and cute Cabbage Patch dolls, right? And you got this this reaction, which is like, no, we want them popping zits and oozing gore and all this stuff. Um, and yeah, Nothing But Trouble is really coming, it's coming out at a time when culturally we had moved away from all that, right? Like we're, we're, we're getting genre films like the silence of the lambs and you know cinema's becoming you know less fun in a lot of ways and um you know movies like dead alive just you know aren't getting made the way they were in the 80s the very few examples of those kinds of movies in the 90s when you compare it to the fun stuff of the 80s and those two kids and those weird you know costumes definitely they basically could be garbage pail kids they could no i love that i was thinking recently uh, exactly what you're saying about remember when horror was slimy. Yeah. And I just don't know. Although there's a Street Trash remake coming, so who's to say? And a Toxic Avenger remake. So Yes. And, you know, I will say that I've really appreciated, you know, some of the newer stuff that's been leaning into gross-out stuff. I thought the, you know, our mutual friend David Osmalchin, the, the suicide squad movie he was in was was really well the guy you know we know where he comes from the director you know yeah. comes from this uh world but uh what was the new one broomfield uh was wait the nicholas cage vampire oh, film. renfield Renfield. Yeah, yeah. broomfield what who's broomfield <laughs> <laughs> what is that i don't know renfield oh my god that is so embarrassing especially saying it to the ultimate dracula fan um, <laughs> i thought renfield was so refreshingly disgusting you know in this super fun gratuitous silly way well you were the one that who smartly equated it to the work of H.G. Lewis with the way the blood was. That's was. right. It was a very smart observation. It was. Well done, <laughs> Peaches. <laughs> but I, I do think we're kind of um, getting back into this sort of spirit of fun and uh, people investing in practical effects again. You know, we've seen a lot more practical effects coming out. So, uh, or movies where you could tell they've made the decision not to go with only CGI. Which maybe means it's time for a legacy sequel to Nothing But Trouble, 
<laughs> well, there you have it. And if you too, much like Michael, enjoy your Wiener schnitzel being served by a giant overweight drag queen, <laughs> we know you like it, Michael, then you too might be one of the children of the popcorn now. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.